America's got money problems, inflation, out-of-control debt and spending, and it's only getting worse. But there's hope. Solving America's money problems, one hour at a time. It's time for Good Money with Tho Bishop. Got a great show for you on this Thursday morning. We're going to be joined on the other side of the break with economist Murray Sabrin. Um, we're going to talk about his his background as an economist and his views on the financial situation in America this these days. But uh, wanted to start off the show by recognizing an important and uh, unfortunate anniversary on uh, August fifteenth of uh, nineteen seventy one. A very important moment in not just American history but global history. Uh, it was Richard Nixon coming forward to American televisions in prime time, announcing at the time was a temporary, soon became permanent, closing of the gold window, which was the last remaining element of the Bretton Woods system, which was the last link to gold as the foundation for our global financial system. Uh, it's, it's interesting looking back and Listening to what President Nixon had to say about that, he made several claims. Um, the most relevant for our purposes was that this move was for the aim of, of price stability. And that don't you worry, Americans, as a result of this, you're not going to see a significant de- decrease of your purchasing power. It may have some impact on the prices of foreign goods, but, and this is a specific example that he mentioned, if you buy, like the majority of Americans, uh, cars made in the United States, for example, you would not see any major change in the purchasing power of your dollar. And so now, 52 years later, has that come in place? Well, of course, cars, um, you know, all sorts of quality of life, various measures of living standards have gone up significantly since 1971. Cars in particular, um, the, the cars were, were on sale for, you know, six, seven, eight thousand $8,000 during that time. Housing prices significantly lower. So what has happened? And while it would be overly simplistic to place all of this into changes on uh, the money, on, on embracing a fiat currency, um, you know, if you look at cars, for example, you can, you know, it, it is, it is a true that cars today last much longer, right? You know, dominoers back in the day kind of stopped at the, the 99 mile mark now you know you're comfortable driving most modern cars to 2000 200,000 miles right so you get twice as much out of it there's all sorts of new bells and whistles um but it's still this is this is one of the greatest thefts out there is that this consequence of inflation and so with that anniversary in mind we will join on the other side of the break with murray sabrin we're going to talk about his path as an economist and uh, the current state of the American economy. So stay tuned, and uh, you're listening to Good Money here on Money Talk 1010. 
Welcome back to Good Money on this Thursday morning. This is a product of the Mises Institute. We've got a special deal for Money Talk 1010 listeners. If you want a copy of a great magazine delivered directly to your doorstep every other month for free, the Mises Institute's offering The Austrian Magazine, which has great economic commentary um, from scholars from all around the world, looking at the Fed, looking at regulation, looking at the cost of government at writ large. And you can get this beautiful print magazine delivered directly to your doorstep for free as a Money Talk 1010 listener by going to Mises.org slash magazine. It's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash magazine. And very excited to have for us today a uh, distinguished economist, Murray Sabrin, author of several, several great books, um, who is now coming to us from uh, Florida, uh, previously professor of, of economics at Ramapo College of New Jersey. And uh, Dr. Sabrin, how are you doing this morning? Great to be with you. So just uh, just make sure we don't upset my colleagues at Ramapo College. I was professor of finance. A professor of finance, <laughs> yes, yes. So we don't want to upset <laughs> our friends in the economics and, department, uh, who I had a great relationship with uh, for 35 years because uh, I taught some courses in the economics uh, department, uh, macro and microeconomics, uh, law and economics, money and economic activity. And then I taught a whole array of finance courses, uh, corporate finance, uh, securities investments. And my favorite course, which I taught, I guess, the last 10 years at the, uh, in my career there was the financial history of the United States. So uh, when I heard your commentary about the anniversary of Nixon's closing the gold window and imposing wage price controls, um, that was a seminal date in American financial history. Yes, a, a, day, a day that should live in infamy. Um, well, let, let's begin uh, uh, building off, off of that, that biography, because you've got a, a fascinating story in your own right, uh, one of your books, From Immigrant to Public Intellectual, an American Story. Um, how, how did you become interested in economics? What was your path that led you to Ramapo College in the finance, finance department? Um, can, can you just share with our listeners uh, uh, some more of, of your personal background? Sure. Well, August uh, is a very special month in, in my life. Uh, it's the month that we came to America in 1949. I was a toddler, uh, came here with my older brother and parents, who were the only ones who survived the Holocaust in their native Poland. All their family members were either killed uh, by the Nazi uh, juggernaut or killed in action uh, during the war. And we settled in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, in 1949, and from there I went to the public schools and um, uh, was just sort of curious about, obviously, their life, why I didn't have any grandparents, why I didn't have any uh, uh, aunts or uncles or cousins. So I started learning uh, firsthand from their experience about World War II, and I became a history major because I was just fascinated with American history, having become a U.S. citizen in 1959 when I raised my right hand in the federal courthouse in Lower Manhattan and swore to uphold the Constitution. And uh, I, I wish members of Congress and uh, presidents and members of the Supreme Court uh, did the same thing to uphold the Constitution. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this financial mess that we're in. But having said that, um, I, I became a history major, geography minor with a concentration in social studies education at Hunter College in the Bronx in the 1960s. Um, began my college um, uh, career as an undergraduate, just as the Vietnam War was getting started in 1965. I became an undergraduate in '64. Uh, and um, that was the year that John, President Johnson said, American boys are not going to Vietnam, and uh, people believed him, and he was a peace candidate in 1964, and then they, uh, less than a year later, 
he sent another 100,000 troops to Vietnam, and we know what happened uh, after that. Uh, 500,000 troops were there, and 58,000 Americans were killed, and God knows how many Vietnamese and other people from Southeast Asia. So I graduated in 1968, that tumultuous year. Um, so in American history, uh, inflation was uh, increasing. Uh, we had the Kennedy assassination, Martin Luther King assassination in April, then uh, two months later we had the Kennedy assassination. And uh, it was just the, the tumultuous year, but then uh, the good news is I graduated in June of 1968, and I got married in August of 1968, and uh, next week we'll be celebrating our 55th wedding anniversary, which in this day and age is quite an achievement, given that um, uh, so many people are getting divorced uh, just after a few years of marriage. So I taught in the New York City public schools, and after a couple of years, though, I realized this is not going to be my career, because there was really no intellectual stimulation uh, teaching in intermediate schools in the inner city. And so I got my master's uh, in social studies education in 1972. I uh, started my full-time um, uh, doctoral program at Rutgers University in the geography department because my goal was to teach uh, geography at the college level. And uh, I came across the Austrian uh, economics uh, school in um, early the early 1970s. In fact, this is an interesting story. Flying home from Italy in September 1971, um, one of the passengers was reading the New York Times, and I saw the editorial page, and it said, the president's economic betrayal. And I asked the gentleman to uh, read the article, and he gave me the newspaper, and there it was, Murray Rothbard's essay, The President's Economic Betrayal of um, What Nixon Did in Terms of Wage Price Controls and Severing the Last Interest Between the Gold and the Dollar. And that's when I really became interested in um, economics and finance. And so uh, I developed my dissertation topic based upon Murray Rothbard's uh, economic treatise, Man, Economy, Faith, about how money spreads through the economy and creates inflation at, in different um, regions and um, cities around the country. And that was uh, the dissertation I wrote that was published in 1981. And um, it was great having him as an outside member of my uh, doctoral committee because um, I was able to uh, uh, pick his brain on a whole host of issues that I was coming across when I was doing my research. And, of course, getting involved in all the Austrian uh, economic um, literature was just an incredible experience for me, having just taken a couple of undergraduate courses in economics, and the whole world opened up to me, which made sense about how do we analyze the world with inflation, unemployment, uh, boom-bust cycles. And I just immersed myself in, in the literature of Mises, Hayek, Hazlitt, Rothbard, and all the other Austrian economists that were writing at the time, and uh, I never looked back because I used this material in my courses uh, to explain how business decision-making takes place in the course of an economic cycle, and then using the tools of financial analysis to help students look how to navigate uh, uh, any business that they're involved in, either as an employee or as an entrepreneur. And... Um, it's just been a, a great experience of being involved with the Austrian economics movement in this country and, and how uh, I was invited by Rothbard to attend the first Austrian economics conference in um, South Wales in Vermont in 1974, where I met Joe Salerno, who is the academic vice president of the Mises Institute. And um, I realized then he was going to be a, a tremendous economist. And of course, he has been for the past uh, 50 years. And so, um, I've written books on the Federal Reserve, the boom-bust cycle, and my um, and my uh, memoir from Immigrant to Public Intellectual really gets into more detail about my journey and how I arrived at Rampo College in 1985, which was totally by, totally by accident, 
getting an emergency appointment because a finance professor quit a, a week before the semester began and I was at the right place at the right time with someone on the a staff at Granville College and um, I got the job and that turned into a 35-year career, which um, was the goal I set out for myself in 1971 when I applied for graduate school. So sometimes, uh, though, it's uh, better to be lucky than smart. And that's that's one of the themes of, of my uh, memoir, plus perseverance. And I describe some of the personal challenges I had uh, uh, during my lifetime and how, uh, how I overcame them. And um, here we are in 2023 trying to make the world a better place. Absolutely. And th- thankfully, they, you, you were at the right place at the right time because of that. Uh, you generations of Ramapo College students were able to get um, your, your perspective and, and a little exposure to the Austrian School of Economics. And um, one, one of the books that you wrote on the Federal Reserve, I've always loved the title, uh, why, why the Federal Reserve Sucks. It causes in, uh, inflation, recessions, bubbles, and enriches the 1%. And I think that you know it, that that gets right to the core of I think one of the, the the major issues that we have in this country right now is the financialization that has erupted because of the incredible excesses and, and hedonism and and just irresponsibility of these very aggressive uh, tenures of of these Federal Reserve chairmen, um, you know, Greenspan, Bernanke, Yellen. Um, you know, Powell is is bears a lot of responsibility for some of the decisions made in 2018. Um, obviously, trying to to reverse course aggressively right now with interest rate hikes that we have seen in the last few years. And I've, I've got one of your articles pulled up from Yahoo Finance from earlier in the year, um, where you identified that a, a recession is inevitable. Um, and that you, you've been ringing this bell for, for a while now that in particularly second half of, of 2023. Um, and, you know, now we see we, we have Murray, uh, uh, Michael Burry of the great of the big short fame that came out with um, his portfolio of investments that show uh, a lot of shorts um, for the, the second half of this year. Um, can, can you explain to our audience what what uh, what are you seeing out there? And what are the concerns that you have for, for the, the economy at large here as a result of you know, both um, you know, a variety of policies that have contributed on, on, on you know, both the physical, regulatory, and other side, but in particular the role that Federal Reserve has played and kind of seeing this, uh, sowing the seeds for some, some real economic problems that uh, have, not, have not yet, that that's still a lot of the financial press are trying to claim are not going to happen? Yeah, this is fascinating because um, we know uh, the Federal Reserve employs 400 PhDs uh, in economics, and you would think that there'd be one person there who understood uh, money and banking and credit and the business cycle because um, if they understood that and, and uh, get that, got that information to the um, uh, Board of Governors and the Open Market Committee, which sets interest rate policy, they wouldn't be doing what they've been doing since the Federal Reserve was created more than 100 years ago. And so, um, and looking at the data, and uh, again, I have the Federal Reserve Economic Database uh, right here on my laptop, and it has all the time series that uh, uh, illustrate what Austrian economists have been saying for decades about uh, central banking and how it impacts the economy. And uh, one thing that I learned from um, Rothbard and others is that you don't need a central banking institution to create economic uh, growth or prosperity. And uh, this is this is the reason that the Austrian economists stress the importance of savings and investment 
which creates capital formation, and capital formation is the foundation of creating consumer goods. And when you create more and more consumer goods, prices eventually go down. Um, and the best example I have of that is when um, color television came out in the mid-1950s, and I was a little kid at the time, and it was $1,000, though, in 1955, 56. And I said to myself as a youngster, why does anyone buy something brand new? Because as production increases, this is my, my 10, 11 year old mind saying, as production increases, prices will come down. And that's exactly what's happened to Color TV. Not only have they come down, but the quality has improved uh, dramatically. And so a $1,000 TV in the mid 1950s is comparable to about $12,000 today. And for $12,000, you can get a whole entertainment center, computers, uh, sound systems. It just shows you the power of investment and capital formation in driving the economy. And so if you understand that, then the question is, why do we have these cycles? And uh, you know, Rothbard, Mises, uh, and Hayek really spent uh, their lifetime explaining this through books and articles. And um, I know we have to come up to a break soon, so I'd like to get into some of the details. What I saw when I first wrote an article in Fortune magazine um, nearly two years ago in December of 2021, explaining that we'll probably have a recession in the second half of 2023. And if it, if it uh, doesn't happen, uh, then we'll have to explore why it doesn't happen at the time. But I think as the data are coming in, uh, we will see that the economy is, is unwinding from the excesses of the cheap money policies of the Federal Reserve for the past several years, and that um, the correction will take place, which is what a recession is. It's a correction to the excesses and distortions created by the Federal Reserve and the federal government. And they're spending trillions of dollars on stimulating different uh, uh, spending programs. Uh, there's a wonderful editorial in the Wall Street Journal today about, um, about Biden's uh, spending spree. It's just incredible how much they're spending uh, on infrastructure and all these other programs. So we'll see what happens in terms of uh, going forward. But I'd like to get into some of the details uh, uh, after we have the next break, if you don't mind. No, absolutely. Um, and you know, I, I think that it's interesting as well because, you know, we're seeing this as a phenomenon globally right now. Um, there's a lot of headlines coming out of China. Um, I know that there's been some major um, major stress out there regarding their their shadow banking system, which has kind of been a, a major tenet of their, their financial um, – their financial system, you have a lot of, I saw there were major protests from investors, kind of working class Chinese families that in order to actually get returns on their savings, they were parking it in these these shadow banking um, institutions and the like. And, and you know, they as well kind of mirroring the same follies that the Fed has done, perhaps even even with a greater extent to the, ex, uh, the degree to which you know they were engaging in money printing in both credit expansion and with the disruptions, you know, obviously there's a major role here in the way that, you know, shutting down the economy in the face of COVID has disrupted supply chains and the like. But, you know, this, this, this dynamic, this, these booms and busts, the consequences of this, this monetary and credit expansion, um, you know, these are not simply unique to the Federal Reserve. Us as Americans, we are, you know, we, we have a certain priority uh, to be interested in the, the consequences of the Federal, Federal Reserve. Um, but this is this is truly a global phenomenon, as you mentioned, the, the work of of Mises and the work of Hayek and the work of Rothbard and and the work of these Austrian scholars. You know, one of the things that that really stands us uh, as a, as a discipline apart is recognizing that these are just kind of truisms 
These, these are just you know, the consequences that proper economic theory provides us in trying to understand these various episodes. You know, these are universal in nature. And I think that you know, as we deal with um, you know, these, these contracting uh, credit uh, dynamics around the world where you know, central banks, again, whether it's the Fed, whether it's the, the ECB, whether it's the, even the Bank of China, with all the authoritarian aspects that you have there that uh, the Federal Reserve would like to have, a lot of these other central banks would like to have, um, but China very much does have in place, even, even all that state power um, cannot uh, take out what, uh, uh, you know, the, the consequences of their actions. And so we, we are joined right now by Dr. Murray Sabrin, and we've got a very exciting event coming on in South Florida um, in November um, down in Fort Myers. If anyone listening is interested in joining us at that event, if you check out Mises.org slash events, that's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash events, you can join Dr. Sabrin in person at Fort Myers, and you can get uh, $10 off your registration by using the promo code uh, TAMPA23. Tampa 23 there. And uh, so I'm always excited to have in-person events, being able to talk about ideas like this. We cannot, uh, not, not a lot of platforms that really allow for this level of, of conversation and uh, having the opportunity to talk to uh, experts like Dr. Sabrin, as well as uh, Patrick Newman, who is a professor at the University of Tampa, uh, Jonathan Newman, who was with us last week, and Bob Murphy, he's always entertaining. So stay t- this is uh, Good Money here on Money Talk 1010. Stay on the other side of the break. We're going to talk more with Dr. Murray Sabrin here on this Thursday morning. Welcome back to Good Money. This is your host, Tho Bishop. This is a product of the Mises Institute, and we've got another special deal for Money Talk 1010 listeners. If you want to learn more about inflation, if you want to learn more about proper economic logic and thinking, we've got a book deal special for Money Talk 1010 listeners. If you go to Mises.org slash good, it's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash good, we've got two books for $5, one of which is How to Think About the Economy by Oklahoma State Professor Dr. Per Byland. It's a great primer in terms of uh, for, for economic reasoning. And we've also got a classic from Murray Rothbard, whose uh, work we discussed on the other side of, this, of the break, how to think about or, uh, what has government done to our money, um, which is particularly timely given the, the anniversary of going off of the closing of the gold window during the Nixon administration. Get both of these books you can get for $5 at Mises.org slash good. Use promo code GOODMONEY at checkout and shipping and handling is included. Our guest today is someone who understands what government has done to our money. That's Dr. Murray Sabrin. And we were talking on the other side of the break about uh, his forecasts for a recession, what he's been seeing as a result of Federal Reserve policy. And uh, Dr. Sabrin, can you uh, kind of expand on some of those thoughts and bring up some of those details that uh, you alluded to on the other side of the break? Yeah, what's happened in the last few years has been unprecedented in American financial history. And I'm looking at the chart now of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. In other words, what does the Federal Reserve own? And what it owns is basically government debt and mortgage-backed securities. And right before COVID hit, uh, the balance sheet was at $3.8 trillion. And then it went up to uh, nearly $9 trillion in mid-2022. Uh, in other words, the Federal Reserve literally created five uh, trillion dollars in uh, less than two years or just about two years that money 
uh, went into the banking system because the way the Federal Reserve operates, it buys government debt from the banks, mortgage-backed securities, then it writes a check electronically to, to these institutions so they have more money, and that money is the basis for expanding the money supply throughout the country. And the money supply, the broad money supply that I know the Mises Institute monitors, um, uh, M2 and the Austrian money supply, which was developed by uh, uh, Murray Rothbard and Joe Salerno, well, the M2 money supply went from $15.4 trillion in early 2020, just before COVID lockdowns and the Federal Reserve's increasing its purchase of government securities, to $22 trillion. In other words, the federal uh, the money supply went up by nearly $7 trillion in, in less than two years. That is just an incredible injection of new money into the economy. And so you would think that the geniuses of the Federal Reserve and, and the talking heads on TV would realize that this would cause inflation. And we know inflation uh, skyrocketed to 9% year over year in June of uh, 2022. But since then, the Federal Reserve has been withdrawing money from the banking system by selling off some of the debt. And so the, uh, their, uh, the M2 is now down to $21 trillion. And so I didn't figure this would when uh, I wrote the article in Fortune magazine in uh, December of 21, because so much money was created and and so little of it was withdrawn, people's pocketbooks and money market accounts and checking accounts are loaded with cash, same thing with uh, corporations. So money is being used to buy things throughout the economy. That's why housing prices have gone through the roof despite interest rates doubling from uh, 3% to more than 7% on the 30-year mortgages. So. What we're seeing is unprecedented in American history. It's unprecedented in the economic financial textbooks. And so the Federal Reserve, I think, real, I think they're starting to realize it because the minutes came out of their last meeting and they're still worried about inflation and rightfully so because that money is still in the system and people are using it and business people um, saying, hey, if people are willing to buy, I'm going to raise my prices 2%, 3%, 5%, whatever they think they can get away with. And I'm not using that in a pejorative term, but if you're a business person and you see people are willing to spend, you're going to raise prices to possibly increase your profit margins or you're going to try to pass along costs, whether labor costs or, or supply costs, to the consumer. Some companies can do it. Some companies can cannot. So this is why the Federal Reserve, central banking in general, and uh, causes so many problems in the economy. Uh, as the subtitle of my Federal Reserve book points out, uh, asset prices have gone through the roof. The stock market has exploded since the bottom in, of March of 2020. And since we know stocks are owned by the, the, the top 10% uh, of people in the country, uh, income earners in the country, their, uh, their uh, net worth has increased dramatically. Well, the average working person in America who earns anywhere between forty and a hundred thousand dollars, depending upon what job they have and where where they are in, in the country, uh, their incomes have been stagnant for the past several years, and so they're filling it at the gas pump, they're filling it at the, at the supermarket, they're filling it at their rents, they're filling it at that insurance, and um, in the latest report from the CPI, automobile insurance is up eighteen percent on average from a year ago. That's uh, that's the result of not only inflation but uh, the the uh, storm we had here, the Hurricane Ian in uh, Southwest Florida um, a year ago. And so all these things are playing into the Consumer Price Index. And it's interesting, uh, though, that uh, Florida's two uh, areas, the Tampa-St. Pete area, 
and the uh, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, West Palm Beach area have the highest year-over-year uh, -year increase in the CPI, and that's primarily driven, I'm sure, by housing prices because I don't have any mm -hmm. breakdown of that data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but it's clear that housing prices have gone through the roof. <coughs> Here in Southwest Florida, as we know, prices are just skyrocketing. There are anecdotes, evidence that some housing, uh, some housing prices have doubled in the past three years, which is an extraordinary increase. And that's a sign of a bubble. The question is, when will it burst? And I guess that it depends on how high interest rates go, where, um, uh, where buyers say, I don't want, I want to wait till interest rates come down. And that, I think, is, is the situation we're in today, is that uh, uh, people's expectations of the future are all over the place. Uh, there are analysts who think we're going to have much lower inflation next year. Some analysts think we're going to have much higher inflation next year because food and energy prices will be probably going up. So, um, so these are the interesting things that we're seeing in, um, in, in the country. And it's just amazing to me that the economists can't figure this out because the Austrian literature has been around for, what, more than 100 years um, since uh, Karl Menger's Principle of Economics and Macy's Theory of Money and Credit in 1912. And all the other economists have been writing about this since uh, the 1930s, Hayek in the 30s and 40s, and uh, Rothbard and um, and uh, Salerno and other economists, Hantape and um, um, uh, Walter Block and Tom Woods uh, since the 1970s and 80s. So the literature is out there, and um, it's great that you're having this show every week because it, it gives us, um, the Mises Institute an opportunity to educate the public that um, uh, we – People should be marching on Washington and saying it's the Federal Reserve, stupid, <laughs> for why we have um, monetary in, uh, inflation, why we have price inflation, and why we have these boom bust cycles. Well, and, and the, the 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 reality that in order to to have any sort of reliable planning for the future, kind of is dependent upon being able to to uh, try to, to to figure out the thought processes of these economists at the Fed, um, you know, it's, it, it, it makes just planning your, your household so much more difficult, particularly when you see the actual record of the Fed itself, where they have such a bad tracker, track record of predicting their own policy decisions, much less the consequences of their own policy decisions. And, you know, with the interest rate environment that we have right now, um, you know, if, if you look back at what the Fed was predicting within their own meetings, about where they expected the federal funds rate to be, um, you know, they were whiffing as bad on that as they have some of their past expectations on growth. And so this entire dynamic of trying to rely upon the, the judgment of this, this great expert class um, that can't even predict what their own institutions are going to do, um, it, it, it creates really a, a, tr a true house of cards. And, and one of the points that you made that I, I think can never be emphasized enough is the extent to which, you know, young people out there, um, uh, working class people, those whose you know the majority of their wealth, and in many cases the entirety of their wealth, is you know dictated by their paycheck. Um, you know they don't have uh, saving levels that they can afford to invest in the stock market. They can't buy um, real estate for the purpose of selling it. You know those are the people that have really been left behind in this economy for you know well over you know for for almost fifteen years now. Really, I mean you know it was bad before, but you know really since the the Great Recession. The extent to which it was gains and in investment uh, assets and the like um, that, that really made up the, the bulk of wealth creation in this country um, has really created this dynamic of haves and have-nots that I think is fueling a variety of the problems that we have in this country. 
Um, but before we get out, we got got a couple minutes before the break. Is there yeah, um, anything else that uh, any other uh, words of wisdom that you have for our audience uh, with, with your experiences? Well, uh, again, uh, in, in, when I was writing my articles on Fortune Magazine and my Substack column at murraysaban.substack.com, I looked at the inverted yield curve, which is probably the best predictor of uh, recession because that's when short-term interest rates go above long-term interest rates. And uh, according to the Federal Reserve data, that occurred in October the 19th, I'm sorry, October 2022. And usually it's about a year or so later that the recession begins. So we're right on target for the recession to begin sometime in the second half of this year, which we are in now, or early 2024. And so uh, as long as the yield curve is inverted, that means that it, uh, companies that borrow short-term are seeing their short-term uh, uh, interest rates go up, and that puts a crimp on their uh, profit margins, and uh, they may be laying off uh, people. But uh, we know that some companies are, are, are keeping uh, labor on, on um on staff because they don't want to lay off people and then go back to uh, they don't want to go back to uh, uh, hiring people when the uh, expansion occurs. So again, a lot of distortions occur are occurring because of the Federal Reserve's uh, policies and, and interest rate manipulation. And that's something that uh, people have to realize is that the Federal Reserve is a manipulator and a, destro- a destroyer of uh, good economic um, activity because of all the. Uh, uh, money that they created, which doesn't benefit the average person. It uh, benefits uh, the, the top 10% of the income earners in the country. And uh, it gives us these uh, cycles, which are very painful if you live through the last big one, whether it's the housing bubble bursting or the early 1980s recession, which was uh, devastating to so many communities. And again, I think the point that, that our audience needs to understand is that these are not the, the natural consequences of a, of a free market economy. This is not the you know the 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 other side of capitalism. These are policy decisions. This is the result of bad ideology. This is the, the result of of bad economics and sometimes outright economic denialism. And the only solution to this is replacing bad ideas with good ideas. And that is the, the message that we try to bring to the table every Thursday morning here on Money Talk 1010. And again, if you are interested in hearing more from Dr. Murray Sabrin, you can check out his Substack at murraysabrin.substack.com. And you can also see him in person in Fort Myers at an exciting event that we've got coming up on November 4th. It's on the White House, the Fed, and the Economy. It's a Mises Circle in Fort Myers, Florida. And again, as a Money Talk 1010 listener, we've got a special discount code for admission there. If you use Mises, or if you use that Tampa 23 at checkout, you'll get $10 off. And you can find more information at that about that event at Mises.org slash events. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash events. And uh, Dr. Sabrin, you wanted to, to make some points about uh, the, the unemployment data out there and uh, the, the way that uh, that is a sign for some of the, uh, the, the, the troubles that uh, you've, you've been forecasting for a few years now, um, given all the, the, the interventions and in the, the recent economy. Yeah, uh, you, when you look at the unemployment data, going back to the end of World War II, when unemployment reaches this level from the 2.5% to 3.5% and, and goes sideways for several months, that means we're basically at full employment and uh, companies uh, won't hire anymore. Uh, they won't lay off people. But when uh, the Federal Reserve policy makes it uh, makes the economy uh, weaken by all the distortions from the previous money printing uh, coming to the forefront, that's when the unemployment starts rising. And it shows clearly uh, 
Unemployment is not a, a lagging indicator, which a lot of economists think. It's a leading indicator because the unemployment rate starts to rise. That means that the uh, that the companies are slowing down their production. They're laying off workers, and uh, we'll see how high it goes. Uh, we during the last cycle and in 2020, we didn't have a, a typical business cycle downturn. We had an implosion because of the COVID lockdowns. But the previous one, which was the housing bubble, the unemployment rate went to 10 percent. And so I don't know how high it's going to go now, but uh, that seems to be a, a nice uh, ceiling for the unemployment rate because in, in the uh, uh, early 1980s, the unemployment rate went to about 11 percent. So 10, 11 percent is, is the maximum that we've seen recently. During COVID, we went to 16 percent, but it was very brief because of the lockdowns. So I'm looking at the unemployment rate, and if it starts ticking up over the next several months, it means that companies are realizing that they've got to cut costs, lay off some workers, and we'll just see how high it goes. There's no way of predicting uh, how high it'll go, but uh, we're starting to see some companies uh, lay off. We, we've seen some bankruptcies recently. A uh, yellow freight company, uh, a 99-year-old company, is going under. Other companies have uh, announced uh, major layoffs. Um, that's why the economy is such a cross current between the, the, what I would call the natural economy, supply and demand, and meeting people's needs. You have uh, the monetary policy of the Federal Reserve, and then of course you have federal spending, which distorts the economy as well. So you have all these things mixed in, and that gives us the GDP of the economy. But uh, right now, uh, the economy is relatively uh, okay, and the question is how high will unemployment go in this uh, next recession? And um, that's why it's important to save as a worker and as an as a entrepreneur, you've got to have cash reserves. And that's one of the foremost financial uh, pieces of information I can give to people is that you never know when your company's going to start laying off uh, individuals. And I knew the pain of that 40 years ago when I was laid off during the 1982 recession. So if you don't have reserves and you have to depend on unemployment, you can have a really tough time getting through. But uh, we got through that period uh, 40 years ago, and um, uh, right now people have to realize that uh, the economy is tenuous, uh, especially in some sectors. But construction seems to be booming between the demand for housing and all the money that the Biden administration is putting in these infrastructure projects. So there's a, we know there's a shortage of labor in certain parts of the country and in certain industries. And, and this shows you how uneven the economy is because of federal spending and monetary policy. Uh, absolutely, and it's it's interesting is that you know the the that prudent piece of, of advice, you know the the importance of savings, you know that is that is exactly where you know it, it is made all the harder uh, within this environment. Um, you know, with with you know the, one of the great consequences, one of the one of the most devastating aspects of the of low interest rates. It's not only simply the distortions um, that create these these financial crises over time. Um, but the extent to which it punishes people for for trying to save it, you, you get a lot less money for having money parked in the bank, and then you add into it the the increasingly authoritarian, dangerous schemes to um, you know, to, to try to uh, erode away the the role of cash in society, the way of uh, you know the, the the specter of of uh, confiscation and bank accounts, debanking and the like. 
Um, you know, the, there's there's a lot of of tools at place, and this is why the, the the issue of money and banking it's not simply an economic matter anymore. It is a civil liberties ba- uh, issue. It is a foreign policy issue. It strikes to the heart of so many aspects of of civil society. And uh, again, the, the experts that are just as bad at predicting their own policies are you know they they want to make up for their mistakes by punishing the rest of us. And that is a, that is a very a very dangerous reality of our modern financial system. Well, I'd like to leave with a, with a very optimistic outlook, uh, and that is the men and women entrepreneurs of America are just an incredible group of people who provide us the services that we want at lower and lower prices if we had sound money. And that's the beauty of, of uh, the free enterprise system. Unfortunately, it's being uh, interfered with by uh, the Federal Reserve and, and the federal government and, and all the regulatory agencies that we have out there. Dr. Mer- Dr. Sabrin, it was so good having you on. Again, you can join Dr. Sabrin at Fort Myers in November. Check out Mises.org slash events to learn more about the event. We're facing a hard break there, but that is a great note to end off on, Dr. Sabrin. Thank you for joining us.